Thanks, Carol, and good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. My name's David. I'm the Senior Minister here at Christchurch. Uh, what you'll find is on the inside, you, as you'll hopefully have just been following along there, we've got Luke chapter 15, so please keep that open if we, as we look at this together. But one of the things we believe at Christchurch is that the Bible is actually God's Word, that He's spoken to us through it. And so what we tend to do when we're about to look at it and think through it is we actually ask God for help. So um, why don't I pray briefly for us as we come to do that. Dear God, thank you so much that you speak to us in the Bible. Please speak to every one of us this morning. Help us to know you better and love you more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope if you are new with us this morning that you have felt welcomed. Uh, it's kind of our theme for the morning, you are welcome. And so whether it's your first time with us or not, or whether you've just come along this morning and you're seeing people from congregations that you don't normally go to, I hope you've had the opportunity to meet someone that you haven't met before. Now, of course, it's, it's, it's just the truth that not everyone's experience when they come to church is a welcome one. I've visited many churches, I've encountered the good and the bad myself. A few years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy named Ted. Now, Ted's an older fellow, and he told me that when he was younger, after a, a, a traumatic time fighting in the Vietnam War, he returned to Australia. And he hadn't been to a church for many years, but his conscience was troubling, he was searching. And so one Sunday, he thought he'd turn up to the church that was near where he lived. So he was nervous, he wasn't used to going to church, and so he comes into the church, and the minister walks up to him and says... Why aren't you wearing a tie? Now, you can imagine how Ted felt. He felt humiliated. And he resolved that he would never set foot in a church again. Now, that is one of those moments when, as Ted was telling me this, I just wanted to teleport back in time. And I wanted to grab that minister and I wanted to shake him and go, don't you get it? But let's stop for a second and ask the question, what didn't he get? I mean, apart from just politeness, why should churches be places where people are welcomed, no matter what their cultural or social background or where their life is at and whether they're committed Christians or whether they're people that are, feel they're a long way from God and maybe are searching like Ted was? I mean, why should anyone come into a church and expect the people that they've never met before and have got their own lives to live will give them their attention or do their best to make them feel cared for? Well, the answer to that is this. Because God is like that. Because God is like that. And Christians should be people that take their lead from God. Now, the Bible passage that we're looking at today is one of the most well-known of all of Jesus' parables. It's the one called the prodigal son. Now, put simply, a parable is a story that Jesus told to teach, to teach something important, usually about God or His kingdom and how people should and shouldn't respond to Him. And as we begin, I want to give us two important pieces. It's important that we read the Bible in its context to understand it. And there's two pieces of context that will be especially helpful for us here. Now, the first important thing to be aware of is this, this passage takes place in a broader section of Luke's Gospel that started back in chapter 9. 
And the whole section is Jesus actually teaching people what discipleship looks like. In other words, he's teaching people what it means to follow him. And the second important piece of context is the immediate setting of the parable, and that's in verse 1 and 2, and this is on the screen of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, many of the people who came to hear Jesus were people whose lives had wandered, let's say, significantly from the path that they should have walked. So, for instance, tax collectors, and not just people who work for the ATO and have their public service certificate and stuff like that, back then they tended to be actually collaborators with the Roman occupying forces. And they would exploit their own people in order to get rich. Because all the Romans cared about was whether they got their money. They didn't care how you got it. And they were often corrupt and they were universally hated. And sinners... Well, these were the kind of people whose immorality or whose irreligiousness was well known. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were religious leaders and they saw themselves as the guardians of what and therefore who was acceptable and who wasn't. And so when they see a Bible teacher like Jesus spending time with such undesirables to the extent that he actually welcomed them and he ate with them, well, how righteous can such a man be? I mean, you, you, you can tell a man by the company he keeps, can't you? If he really is a man of God, he should have nothing to do with such corrupted and immoral people and certainly not actively spend time teaching them. And so Jesus turns around and he tells these men, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, three parables. It seems that they needed to learn a lesson about God. And the first parable, as we heard in the kids' talk, is about a lost sheep. Surely, Jesus said, if you had a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, then you'd leave the 99 together where they're safe and then you'd go find the lost sheep. And then when you found it, well, you'd celebrate the fact that you found it. You'd call your friends together and, and everyone would be happy about it. And the second parable he told was about a lost coin. You know, imagine a woman has 10 silver coins, she loses one and she'd turn the place upside down trying to find it. And then when she did, she would get her friends together and celebrate. See, they're both pictures of, of finding something lost that really mattered to you, rejoicing when you found it and then importantly, sharing that joy with the people around you. Both parables end with a similar lesson from Jesus. See, in contrast to the mean-spirited Pharisees, this is how God rejoices when any sinner repents. See, Jesus didn't become a cheating tax collector. He didn't participate in the sinner's immorality, but he did befriend them. And he did encourage them to know God. And he did challenge them to repent. That means to turn from their sin, because he shared his Father's heart. Here's the problem with all of that. Well, it's not a problem, it's something that needs to be added to. People aren't sheep. And people aren't coins either. They're not objects. And that is something that the third parable that he tells in the series powerfully brings home. This time, it's not a possession that's been lost. And this time, the Pharisees have got their own character in the story. So let's have a look at this famous story of Jesus together. Look at verse 11 there, it's, as I said, it's on your outlines there and you can follow it through with me. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, 
Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now, what would you make of that? If one of your kids came up to you and said, I want my inheritance now, thanks. I mean, apart from the fact that it's pretty presumptuous, it's, it's actually pretty hurtful when you really think about it. I mean, normally an inheritance is something that you leave to your children after you're dead. And normally you give it to them after you've died because when you're alive, you're kind of still using it. Nevertheless, this is actually what the younger of the man's sons does. Basically says, hey dad, can you like, you know, die already? I want my share of your stuff. I'm off. And can I say that this isn't over-reading this? This is actually the way you're meant to hear it. As if he's saying, I wish you were dead. See, when amazingly the father actually goes along with what the son has said and, and requested, it's put in very striking terms. So he divided his property, if you see that there, is literally in the original language, so he divided his life between them. This is the man's life and the kid wants his cut now. I can't imagine, some of you might actually know what this is like and my heart goes out to you if that is you. I can't imagine how painful it would be to have a child who you love but who wants nothing to do with you but they'll happily take your stuff. I mean, I know people in that situation. And, and you can just feel their pain. It's so wrong. But even as we feel the offensiveness of what this younger son has done, notice this detail for later on. Park it away in your mind. The father divided his livelihood between them. Okay? Both sons got their cut, even though only one of the sons was asking for it. Well, we come to the part where the prodigal son gets his name. For those of you who don't know, the word prodigal means wastefully extravagant. The one thing the son doesn't do, though, is waste time. He's got his stuff and he leaves straight away. And he goes to a country far, far away from home, as long away from home as he can get to, and he then just squanders it all on wild living. Now, of course, reckless living like that seems attractive for a while and it seems to have its rewards for a while. You know, seize the day, right? Make it extraordinary. But it never lasts. And the son's excessiveness comes back to haunt him. He seized the day, but he wasn't prepared for the tomorrows that all came after it. This faraway land upon which he sets his hope then turns against him. Look at verse 14 there. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. He's nowhere near home. He's got no family around him. He's moved away from his friends. The rest of them were just using him and he's got no inheritance left and his options now have shrunk drastically. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, for any of Jesus' Jewish hearers, this is rock bottom. Actually, this would be humiliatingly shameful. 
Even in Jesus telling this story, if people were picturing it, it would be nauseating for them. Far more than it is for us. Because pigs were about as unclean as you could possibly get. You wouldn't go near pigs. You wouldn't have them in your town if you were Jewish. And this young man has now become a pig's servant, when you think about it. I mean, that's pretty low. Actually, it's not rock bottom. Verse 16 is. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. You know, when you find yourself envying pigs, what they're getting to eat, but you can't even get that, there is nowhere lower that you can go. The word, world is a, is a hard place when everyone is looking after themselves. And this boy is now alone in it. But there's also a sense of tragic justice about the son's situation. It's like he's, he's reaping what he sowed. You see, the word longed in that is actually the word for desire. And the word term fill his stomach is the word for satisfaction. Satisfying his hungers. See, the one who took his father's livelihood and then wasted it in order to indulge his lusts and his appetites now is experiencing the emptiness of that life. Now his lust is to, is to actually hunger after unclean pig food that's disgusting and not even that is satisfying. All right, let, let's stop for a minute now. I want to ask you a question. How do you feel about the younger son now? I mean, even as we recognise, yes, look, this is his own fault. It's the consequences of his own actions. But if you were there and you knew this man, and you saw him in the pigsty, would you, would you laugh at him? Would you point and say, ha, look at you. Serves you right, I hope you suffer. Enjoying the mud? Of course we wouldn't. See what Jesus has done here. He's, he's flipped the story so that this particular sinner, who you could be very rightly angry at before, now evokes our pity, even our compassion. Well, wisdom now dawns on this prodigal son. What have I done? He's, he had spurned his generous father and he realises, I've been a fool. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many times, how many of my, my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. Look, he realised that if he keeps going the way he's going, if he keeps doing what he's been doing, he's going to get the same results and the outcome is going to be death. A death that he realised he'd brought upon himself with his own foolishness. And so he resolves to swallow his pride. And if you put yourself in his shoes for a minute and think about what he's about to do, this is seriously swallowing his pride. I mean, can you imagine? After all that he's done... Going home to face dad? But where had pride got him? Why was that to be treasured? See, rightly he realised that he didn't deserve anything from his father. He just, he just placed his hope in his father's mercy and that maybe, just maybe, he might take him back you know, as a hired hand. 
And so he plans his speech, and it's quite a moving speech. It's in verses 18 to 20. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I think that's a good speech. Okay, so, so he gets up and, and he went to his father. Well, I'm sure you picked it up when it was being read. The, the father's response is just beautiful. Look at that there. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Do you know, long way off is the same word that Jesus used when he was talking about the faraway country that the boy had left to. It's almost as if Jesus is saying the father had never stopped watching the road. He'd never stopped waiting for his son to come back. And far from being embittered and angry, look at what we read. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. You see, there's so much energy in this. So much delight in that greeting. Passionate delight. It's, it's almost like he attacks him with love instead of the anger that the boy might have expected. Well, the son remembers what he'd recited and he, and he follows through on his confession because it was true, right? His confession of his sin to his father. But do you know, notice that he never even gets to the second part of it, the bit about asking to become a hired hand? The father interrupts him. Because yes, he did sin against heaven and you bet he sinned against his father and he wasn't worthy to be called that man's son. But he is that man's son son and his father loves him and he's back home and that is a cause for rejoicing look at verses 22 to 24 but the father said to his servants quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger sandals on his feet bring the fattened calf and kill it let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and so they began to celebrate. See, just like the lost sheep, just like the lost coin, but so much more beautiful, isn't it? So much more joyous. And of course, the father responds this way. Of course, the father responds this way. You would respond this way, wouldn't you? Yeah, I have got a friend who is estranged from his son at the moment. And if that son came back my friend would have the same result, the same response as the father in this parable and he would do it 100 times out of 100. There would be tears of joy and God willing, one day I'm going to get a phone call telling me that that's happened. And given the point of the previous two parables, Jesus' point is really clear, isn't it? Unlike the sheep and the coin that are like the sinner... The son is a sinner. This is what sin's like, just like this. It's, it's taking everything that God gives us, the life that he gives us, all of the things, our breath and the friendships and the food and everything is what God has given to us and we just use it to gratify ourselves. But we just want to do it as far away from him as possible. We want God's stuff, we just don't want God. And God is like that father. He's watching the road, longing for every sinner to abandon that life of sin and return to him. He's graciously ready 
for those who come to their senses, who let go of their pride and who ask him for forgiveness. He is ready, eager. And the result for such a person, Jesus is making very clear, is just like the son in that story. Not, not serving out penance, not living in the doghouse or consigned to some sort of slavery to make up for all the bad stuff we've done, but fully restored as a child of God and as an heir of his. See, Jesus is showing us in this story the amazing grace and compassion of God. And the thing about Jesus is that he knows the price of that compassion. You know, later on in John's Gospel, in Luke chapter 19, straight after a chief tax collector called Zacchaeus joyfully turns from his sin, Jesus says this, he says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he goes on to say, for the Son of Man, that's his way of talking about himself, came to seek and to save the lost. He wasn't just a guy that was telling the story. He was living it out. He was the shepherd that went out for the sheep. He was like the woman finding the coin. He's like the father searching for the son. Jesus is the one who the father has sent to bring lost sinners back to him by dying on the cross to pay the debt for your sin and for mine. In Ephesians, we're told that you who were far away, once were far away, have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. See, that's the welcome that God gives. And no matter what you and I have done, no matter how long we might have been away from him, because of Jesus, God lovingly welcomes back every sinner who repents. And that is a cause for outstanding joy. It's a celebration that all who know that will celebrate and do together literally forever. You know, one day about seven or eight years ago, for the first time in 40 years, Ted turned up at church. His son had invited him and this time, unlike all the other times he said, no way, he came. And after the service, he, he and I chatted for about an hour and that's when he told me about that foolish minister. But there were some bigger things in there as well that had kept him away. The minister was a reason, but not the reason. He was in the infantry in Vietnam and he told me that he had seen things and that he had done things that he was sure would mean that God could never, ever accept someone like him. And so he talked about forgiveness and we talked about God's amazing grace. His own son, who by the way was a quadriplegic, met up with him to look at the Bible and to walk through who Jesus was and what he had done for him. And about two months later, Ted committed his life to Jesus. And now, nearing 90, he is still going strong and he loves his church. You know, if, if anyone here is in a situation, maybe not like that, but where you're thinking you wouldn't mind having a fresh look at Jesus and you think that would be helpful for you. There's an excellent course that we run called Christianity Explored where that's exactly what will happen and you'd be more than welcome to come along to that and it can be done at your convenience. And if you are interested in that, you know, put that on the Connect card, just tell us who you are and that you're interested in doing that.
But there's an important final scene to this story. And this is where the other discipleship lesson kicks in. There was another brother, wasn't there? This older son also journeys back from a field. Not with pigs, but he comes back from a field. And he hears the music and the celebration and he asks one of the servants what the story is. Verse 27, Well, your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But notice that this son is in no mood to celebrate. In fact, he's hot with anger. He refuses to go in. And once again, we hear of the gracious father who goes out to meet one of his stubborn sons. This time to plead to this son to come in. But notice that the old son is so embittered, he stays outside. Listen to the resentful tone in these verses. I'll reread them, verses 29, 30. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. He's angry, you can feel it. Now you might be tempted to go... Fair enough, isn't it? He does the right thing, the other guy throws it all away and and yet he gets a party when he comes back? Well, it may not be longing for pig food, but bitterness is its own kind of famine. And this son talks as if he's gone hungry when it was nothing like that for him. Something that his father now lovingly reminds him. Slave, hey? Not even a young goat? Look at verse 31. My son, you're not a slave. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And notice this bit, everything I have is yours. The son, in his resentment that somebody else might be shown something good, forgets himself. Because remember, the father had divided his life between the two of them. Quite literally, everything he had belonged to the other son. And this other boy was not just his father's son either. But we had to celebrate and be glad, the father says, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, given the younger son's piteous circumstances, given the father's wonderful graciousness, the older son's resentment looks mean-spirited at its very shiniest. It's embarrassing. You know, we aren't the father here, but we are the sons. Now, we might be the long, like the younger son, perhaps still spending what God has given us, but not wanting him in our lives. Maybe the emptiness of life without God is starting to dawn on us. Maybe we are trying to find our way back home. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard God welcoming you home today. Or we could be like the other son, enjoying relationship with God but tempted to take it for granted, as if we're entitled to all of this. Lacking in thankfulness, maybe with a hardened heart that struggles to love others and is too ready to stand in judgment upon them. The thing is, whoever we are, Churches are places that everyone should be welcome, 
we are places for welcomed sinners because that describes every single Christian. Jesus wants his followers' hearts, you see, to be like his and to be like his father's. A heart that welcomes, a heart that seeks the salvation of others and a heart that rejoices together in the goodness of God and loves to celebrate it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing story of Jesus. We thank you for the way it gives us a window into what you were like. That we who have treated you are happy to take what you give and don't give you the worship in response. We pray, we're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you are looking down that road. And we thank you that you accept us back and we repent. Help us to celebrate this in our lives and in the lives of others. And help us to show the same welcome that you have shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.